The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Genesis 45 is uh, where we're at. Open your copy of God's Word to it. We're continuing our series, and God meant it for good. Now as we begin, true confessions. You ready for this? True confessions. Who in here is a reality TV nut? Anybody? What's your favorite show? What's, what's out there that you just can't miss? Bachelorette? Bachelor? Those? Yeah? Someone's like, no, I can't admit that in church. That's right. Yeah, Deadliest Catch. All right. That's right. There, there are some great shows. And what is it about it? It's the drama that draws us in, right? It's the, we, the characters we identify with in the, sh- in, the, in the show. Some of you watch Duck Dynasty and you're like, yeah, I'm kind of like those guys there. Maybe not. But uh, it's, 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 they suck us in so much so that when the season finale comes, we feel empty when it's over. And it was, some of us maybe are so into it that it ends on a Monday night and then Tuesday we have to call out of work because we're just like, we, like our life is over. Hopefully not. If that's the case, then, uh, then let's set up an appointment to talk about these things. But Joseph's life for us, as we've been walking through his life chapter by chapter, Joseph's life has played out a lot like a reality TV show, hasn't it? We've been drawn in by the drama, the father's favoritism, the brother's betrayal, the wild dreams, people thrown in pits and in prisons, a slave that has now become almost a king. He's become royalty. And we can identify with people like Joseph and Judah and even Jacob throughout this story. And as we've watched this process of reconciliation unfold these last three chapters, we're now kind of left to wonder what's going to happen with this broken family? What's, what's, what's next? Joseph is unknown to his brothers at this point. He's been testing them all along, and it's revealed some very encouraging things. God has been working in these brothers' heart over these last 20 years. 20 years ago, they were bitter and cold towards one another. Now, they are showing signs of compassion and kindness. And chapter 44 last week ended with Judah even offering himself as a substitute for the youngest brother, Benjamin. To become Joseph's slave in his place to atone for Benjamin's guilt. And all along there, we've just been pointing to what Jesus did on the cross. So let's turn now, if you haven't, let's go to Genesis 45. I want to read it for us so we can see what comes next. You ready for it? Follow along here as I read it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. His heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of the Lord. Write this down in your notes. It's a top point. Write this in your Bible. Hold fast to God's sovereignty. Hold fast to God's sovereignty. This is the main theme through this chapter. This is the gem, the jewel that is held up before us, that is woven throughout this entire exchange. See, right theology is the key to unlocking reconciliation. 
Throughout these last three chapters, we've seen brothers that have been estranged, that have severely hurt one another, now becoming reconciled. The relationship that was broken is being restored. And that begins, that right theology begins by believing the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty simply means this, the, that God is, has supreme, complete rule and authority over the earth. That God has supreme, complete rule and authority over all the earth. And underneath Joseph's response in this chapter, as he reveals himself to his brothers, is a deep conviction and understanding of God's sovereignty. These are the deep roots in his life that have kept the tree from blowing over in the midst of all the trials and hurts that he has experienced at the hands of his brother. Last week we saw that the compassion is what drives reconciliation. We've seen Joseph's compassion for his brothers, the heart that lies behind why we would try to even mend a broken relationship with somebody that has greatly offended us. If that's the heart, the source of that compassion is a conviction in God's sovereign rule over our lives. If last week was the heart, this week is the mind. And so when I say what we do with our hands, when I say we hold fast to God's sovereignty, it first means this, we come near. Look at the first four verses with us. We come near. Notice what happens in this exchange here. They've just gone back and forth. 44, Judah has revealed himself to his brothers. And at this, or Judah has rather offered himself as a substitute. And as a response to this, Joseph is so overcome with emotion that he sends everyone away except his brothers. Can you imagine how freaked out these brothers would be? They don't know that the man standing before them is their brother. They just know him as one of the most powerful people in the most powerful nation on earth. That this is a ruler of Egypt. They are coming to him because they're hungry and they want some grain. And now this man who surely is dressed in his royal garb, who has been, uh, who's just actually threatened to enslave them, now bursts out weeping. So much so that the neighbors hear it, right? The household, the Egyptians and the household of Pharaoh, that's some wailing, right? You ever have that happen in your house? Like your kids are wailing, like, shut up, the neighbors are gonna hear you. <laughs> that only happened at my house. The houses are built so close together, it's like, Joseph is wailing. He is weeping so hard. In verse 3, the brothers received this unexpected surprise, this shocking news. You may have had surprise guests show up at your house and knock on your door. The last person on earth that you decided that you thought would be there on the other side, you probably never had something quite like this. Somebody that you haven't seen in 20 years, and as a matter of fact, the last time you saw him, you were selling him as a slave. And so this is actually kind of an understatement. It says they are dismayed at his presence. They're flabbergasted. They're tongue-tied. They're shocked to silence. They, they're, they're immovable. And at Joseph's revelation of who he is, after all of these years, 
the shocking nature of the situation. Verse 4 is instructive to us. Standing now before these guys that had hurt him unbelievably, instead of lashing out, getting revenge, running away because he didn't think the relationship was worth it, what does he ask them to do? To come near. See that? He says, come near to me, please. And this movement towards one another is a simple but difficult step. See, when we're in a conflict, our, our sinful selves, we want to go and we want to dig our foxholes, right? We get, in, we get hurt by somebody, and so what do we automatically do? We come over here, we find our defensive position, and we start digging in for the battle. The other person comes over here, they start digging in for the battle. They dig our foxholes. We, we dig them out because we, we just want to find the most strategic position. We want to open fire and push the enemy back. But beloved, when we are holding fast to God's sovereignty, in that situation, we must leave our foxholes and come near to one another. Couples get in a fight and one retreats to the bedroom and the other retreats to the garage. Friends get in a a fight, they disagree and they go their separate ways and it becomes this kind of cat and mouse thing of, okay, who's going to, you know, how can we avoid one another? There's conflict at work and it becomes this, uh, this big game. There's extreme effort that happens to like avoid them in the office to, to not pass, not take breaks at the same time. And we move apart. But if the joy of reconciliation is to be experienced, then the first step is one towards the other person, not away from. We come near seeking to learn, to understand. But a broken relationship can't be mended if we're in our foxholes, only when we come together. And let me assure you, it'll probably involve a lot of tears, maybe some weeping. The neighbors may hear it. You may have to dismiss some children. You may have to dismiss people from your presence. There may be some shock when you do. But beloved, God's sovereignty is so at work in the midst of when we come near. His work is actually in overdrive because this is the business that God is in. This is what we've been seeing all along, isn't it? That God is in the business of reconciliation. That first vertical where we have been reconciled to God as sinful humans. And as the overflow of that, we are then reconciled to one another. God initiating this work and walking with us every step of the way. So we can be sure that when we take that first step of coming near someone, God is with us in the midst of it. And when we do it, he does it for this second point as well, so that we can also let go of the offenses. Look how verse 4 continues on. They're exposing for us the roots of Joseph's theology. He can let go of these offenses. He can, he can let go of the hurtful things that his, brother ha- his brothers have done to him Because of these right beliefs that he has. Look at verse 4. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. See, what we believe determines how we act, right? That the, the, the heart is exposed in the things that we say. And the things that we do, the fruit of a tree shows us what the roots are. 
And here in verse 4, we see these things on display. And Joseph's heart, he's, he's laying the guilt on his brothers. He says, you sold me here. You sold me. He is, he is affirming the human responsibility. His brothers did a great offense. He's not just overlooking, them. oh yeah, you know that, that thing. No, he is bringing it up. He is showing that they hurt him and they are responsible for it. But he's able to forgive them. Look at how verse 5 goes. He's saying, do not be distressed or angry, angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For what? For God sent me. He also recognizes God's involvement in the situation. He recognizes God's work in the midst of all of these horrible circumstances, in the midst of these painful relationships. They sold him, but God sent him. They sold him, but God sent him. The brothers were God's means here to preserve this family and to keep this promise that God had made. God working through this severe famine and these sinful brothers to preserve the promise that he had made many years ago, generations before, to this family. And now God is saving a portion or a remnant through these years of famine. This is a theme of scripture of God saving a portion, saving a remnant through the most horrible of times. And these convictions, these beliefs coming together allow Joseph to let go of the hurt that they had caused him. He's able to let go of it. He's compassionate. He's forgiving towards them. He's able to come near to them and they to him. Because see, when we're holding fast to God's sovereignty, of God's sovereign rule in our life, our hands are full. That is one of those things that we can't even fully understand of how God does it all. But when we are holding fast to that, we can't hold on to anything else. Unless maybe you're like a mom with young kids. The moms with young kids, they can hold all kinds of things in their hands. Three kids, you know, and diaper bags and toys and all kinds of stuff. No, beloved, see, here's the thing. When we're holding fast to God's sovereignty, we can't hold on to anything else. And so we can let go of things like anger. So we can let go of these things. When we are holding fast, when we are holding fast to God's sovereignty, We don't have to be angry in the midst of this situation. We can let go of bitterness. A bitterness that would enslave us for years and years where all we can think about is getting revenge. We can let go of revenge. We can let go of jealousy. Why do they get all the good things and I don't? I wish I had a life like that. We can let go of things like slander. Where our whole life is just bent on diminishing this other person's relationship, of speaking poorly of them. And we hold on to those things and and it, it drives us mad. We lose sight of God's work in our life. We lose sight of God's goodness. We lose sight of what God is teaching us in the midst of it because we're clutching those things so tightly. But beloved, when we're holding fast to God's sovereignty, all those things, we can let go of. There's no room and our hands to hold on to those things and a myriad of others. We just let them go into the sea of offenses covered by the blood of Christ. And so I just ask, what do you, today, who do you need to forgive? What do you need to let go of? Or today is no longer. I'm not, I'm not enslaved to that. I'm not going to be angry anymore. 
I'm not going to be bent on revenge anymore. I'm going to hold my tongue towards that person from here on out. Holding tight to those things on that list, they'll eventually break your hand and eventually your soul if you cling too tightly to them. We hold fast to God's sovereignty, letting go of, of offenses. And when we do that, it means clinging to great joy. It means clinging to great joy. And what substance, uh, subsequently comes out of that, it opens us up to this last point, the bulk of the chapter, that we can take in God's goodness. See, when we let go of those things, that opens us up to see these things, to take in God's goodness. And really from verse 8, for the remainder of the chapter, the rest of those 20 verses is showing us example after example, evidence of God's goodness to Joseph, his brothers, and his father, to God's people. But see, here's, here's the thing. God's sovereignty and God's goodness walk side by side. We just sang about that in the song, Not For a Moment. Not for a moment did you forsake me. After all, you are good. You are sovereign. And these two fundamental uh, beliefs about God's character are so important for you and I. We must embrace these things. Because if we don't, I would say we miss the point of the God of the Bible. See, God's sovereignty means that he's in charge. And his goodness, well, means that he is good. He does good. And if we have a God who is in charge but he's bad, he's a dictator. If he's in charge, but he's bad, he's a dictator. He's an evil, harsh, little G God, a ruler. If he's not in charge, but he's good, then he's probably just a genie. Something that we, he's not in charge, but he's at our beck and call. He's going to give us what we want. But if he's neither, if he's both not in charge and bad, then he's just a human. He has no control. There's none of us that are good. Where our only goodness comes through Jesus Christ. But when God is both good, he's in charge, and he is good, then he's the God of the Bible. Then he's the God of the scriptures. He's the God of the universe, the one that is in charge, and the one that has our best interests at heart, the one who is good to us and working out all things good on our behalf and for his Glory, Beloved, that's the God of the Bible. And when we have that at our, in, in our minds, that, that as our foundation, we can take in God's goodness. We can hold fast to these things. Let's just look at a few examples from this, the rest of this chapter. God's goodness, God's goodness is shown in multiple ways. First, verse 8, he's made Joseph the father, lord, and ruler. That's interesting, these titles here. Some Debate on, well, what does father mean? You see that in verse 8? It's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. It's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe he has like this fatherly influence in him. There's some say, well, the, the uh, Egyptian word for vizier or a, um, a royal ruler is, sounds about the same as the Hebrew word for uh, father in this. So there's some debate. But he's lord, he's ruler. He's a man of power. He has elevated... Joseph to a high place in society after being a slave for so many years. This is God's goodness to him, promoting him, working through him to that he would have this position of influence in this country to preserve the promised family through famine. 
We see that repeated multiple times. Joseph is bringing them back. He understands God's purpose in the midst of all these trials. What God has been doing all along these 20 years in moving him from uh, pit to prison through Potiphar's house, all these things has been for this, so that God's goodness could be on display by preserving the promised family. His goodness is on display by reconciling these brothers Look at verses 14 and 15. They are weeping. These are grown men weeping on one another's neck. I love how verse 15 ends. After that, his brothers talked with him. What do you think they said after all these years? What would be the first thing out of your mouth? Like, hey, you were hugging. (laughs) Like, how are your kids? Who did you get married to? All these things over 20 years. What do you think they said? God's goodness continues on. It's on display through Pharaoh's abundant provision for this family. Pharaoh hears this great news that here his brothers show up and instead of being skeptical, instead of being uh, embittered, instead of uh, killing them or whatever, he actually shows them great kindness in providing this massive entourage for the journey for these now 11 brothers back to Canaan And then also abundant provisions for the return for Jacob and the rest of the family. I mean, just imagine it like this. Say you go home from church and this afternoon, a whole string of limousines pull up. Massive ones just loaded down with every, everything you could ever need. And they say, hey, you're heading back to, uh, I'm from Wisconsin, so you got a journey from Wisconsin in these things. And then we're turning around, we're bringing your whole family back to to Texas. That'd be pretty nice especially because we're driving there uh, over the next couple days. It's like a 20-hour drive. It'd be nice if somebody else was driving and I had all these provisions, a whole string of limousines, maybe a police escort or something too. A bed to sleep in. But Pharaoh abundantly provides for them. The chapter ends then with his father that is rejuvenated. Imagine this. 20 years, all, you've thought that your son was killed killed by wild beasts. Now you're just going about your business, your son's return, you're hoping that they return. With they, he, you just sent them there just to get some grain, so you're hoping, one, that they come back alive, two, that Benjamin comes back because he was scared and nervous about what was going to happen to Benjamin. So as they're coming, he's hoping that they're, uh, that they're coming back with grain, they're coming back with Benjamin, and hopefully Simeon as well because he was imprisoned. That's what he's expecting. He's a man of old age. And now he sees this entourage. And when they come, they tell him, actually, remember your son, Joseph? You haven't seen him in a while? You thought he was alive? Or he thought he was dead? He's alive. And he's not just alive. He is the ruler of all of Egypt. You think your heart would go numb? Probably. That's some pretty shocking news, isn't it? And he doesn't believe them at first until the entourage comes. Until all the wagons show up. And then they say, and then he's like, well, yeah, actually, okay, that's proof enough. And Israel, verse 28, Israel's covenant name, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. It says his spirit revived. His father, this old man, is rejuvenated. This is God's goodness. God's goodness to an old man. God's goodness to a promised child. 
from Joseph to Jacob, they are experiencing the joy of reconciliation and the goodness of God who has been in charge since chapter 37 and really since day one. But he has been in charge of every single circumstance since Jacob sent Joseph as a 17-year-old boy into the pasture to look for his brothers. I think there's been some like sadness and bitterness, some, some regret, some doubt in this father of him. Well, I shouldn't have sent him. I should have sent a slave. But all along, God's goodness has been at work. See, here's, here's something. Our experiences, they're, they're great teachers, aren't they? Well, the things that we go through, our circumstances in life, we learn life's lessons through life's experiences. Things that happen, they shape how we think. They shape how we act and react. And this is why it's so important to hold fast, to have a deep conviction of God's sovereignty in our life because this acts as a filter that no matter what happens, we can see God's goodness even in the most difficult of circumstances. And we know this uh, same event can be interpreted, can be uh, seen from multiple perspectives, right? And it really depends upon what is filtering it. A president gets elected and it depends upon which camp you're in, whether you're excited or not, right? Gas prices go down and it depends, you know, for us as consumers, it's great. But for those that work in the industry, it's not so great because there's layoffs and all kinds of things. Same event can be interpreted multiple ways depending upon your perspective, as Christ followers, we want to be standing where Christ is. And when we have a wrong view of who God is, when we have a wrong theology, when we think that he's a dictator, a genie, some human, something lesser than he is, then the circumstances of life are seen through those same experiences. When we see God as a genie, then when we don't get what we want, we act as a child that didn't get the toy that they wanted. When, things, when we see God as a dictator and things don't go the way we want, we see God as this evil, harsh person that is just out to get us. But when we see God for who he is, as the sovereign, good God, we can see things in great joy. In great joy, seeing things from his perspective, his control, the good that he is doing. And this is what we want to be. This is the place that we want to be as God's people, that no matter what is in, going on in our life, we can say, but God has done a great thing through it. But God has done a great thing through it. You may have sold me, but God sent me. And God is good. If nothing else, if we can't see the lesson, the, the thing that's right there in front of us, if nothing else, he's maybe teaching you how to forgive like Jesus taught, forgave you. And that might be one of the greatest lessons that we could learn. If nothing, he's given you greater insight into the gospel, into what God has done for us, how God came near to us in Christ. Born as a man, living the perfect life. And then he paid for our sin through his death, letting go of our offenses against him. And out of that, then lavishing on us every spiritual blessing, every good thing we could ever want. This is the gospel, friends. Is God drawing you near today? Is God drawing you near? Is this new truth to you? This Jesus who has reconciled humanity to himself. 
by living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved to die, coming near to us. This is the good news. Have you embraced it? You can pray. You can do that even today. You pray. It's like, God, you have come near. I know that I'm apart from you. But thank you for Christ. I don't know what this all means, but I want to follow you today. Whether you're doing that for the first time or you're just getting greater insight through what God is doing in your circumstances, I pray that you take in God's goodness to you today. Take some time to think about this. Take some time to to reflect on what God is doing in the midst of your life right now. Talk about it with the person that you're sitting next to before you leave. Talk about it over lunch. Pray, reflect on it. Journal about it before you meet the work week this week. See, the difference between reality TV and God's word is there's no empty feelings after it's over. There's no calling in for work tomorrow. Real life Christianity has its drama and difficulty, does it not? It does. But when we are holding fast to God's sovereignty, our hearts are full of joy. So may God's spirit give us greater understanding of his will and greater faith when we can't see and a greater grip, a greater grip on his goodness.